back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thank you so much for tuning in. Great to have you here. And the Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z, B-R-O-S.com, trapping supply company of choice for the Trapping Today podcast. You go to Cots Bros and you can find traps, baits, lures, books, DVDs, just about everything you need to get started on the trap line. So check them out and stay tuned here in this episode for the results of the Cots Brothers Lures giveaway. Um, very, very exciting uh, response that I got back from you guys. So we'll talk about that soon. Podcast is also brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction, where the world comes to buy wild fur. FHA, run by trappers for trappers. Folks at the auction house are trappers. They understand the ups and downs running a trap line, the amount of work that's involved in preparing those quality pelts, and the importance of each and every pelt that comes through the doors. Um, they have uh, two to three auctions a year. FHA has receiving depots throughout the U.S. and Canada, so regardless of where you were, you are in the United States or Canada, you're probably somewhere within reasonable distance of Fur Harvesters depot or uh, pickup location. Go to FurHarvesters.com to find more information about shipping your fur to them. You can also find past auction results and all kinds of other uh, informative stuff uh regarding trapping and and uh, handling fur or you can call them at 705-495-4688 all right so i'm about 15 16 hours into this day it's been a long one and the middle of summer uh, if you're not preparing for trapping you're probably doing something else and for me that something else involves moving cattle and moving hay it's been a long process been a long day today shipped out a bunch of critters and uh shipped in a bunch of hay and had to coordinate all that stuff and and i'm glad the day is over and i'm glad i finally get to think about trapping again so it's been one heck of a busy week and it will continue to be that way for me until the days start getting shorter and the uh, those dark nights start coming earlier and earlier and the weather gets colder and it signals the beginning of another trapping season, something we all look forward to, even though we hate to see summer go away. Fall means trapping's coming along. So uh, I have not gotten uh, back to you guys on email. I've been quite a ways behind on that. I'm seeing all the emails as they come in. And if you remember last week, we had a giveaway Kellen Kotz's Flat Set Fix DVD and the Black Book of Coyote Trapping combination. Uh, this was Kellen's idea. He uh, he suggested that we do a giveaway, and I also thought it would be a good idea to try and get some input from you guys on what you'd like to see in the show. So the instructions were simple. Send me an email at jrodwood at gmail.com. Let me know what you would like to see in the podcast, uh, what you'd like to see us talk about or cover more of. And boy, oh boy, you guys came out of the woodwork. I had all kinds of responses and was really excited to get all, all of that back from you guys. Sometimes don't hear much for a little while and wonder if, if people are still listening in. And it's great to see the, a bunch of guys that have emailed me in the past and we've gone back and forth a little bit. And I don't know, I wasn't sure if they were still listening. And, and it was good to see a bunch of those guys uh, get back to me. And a bunch of new faces, new people that have 
uh, haven't haven't heard from before that are listening to the podcast. So it's great, great, great stuff. So tonight I am going to draw a name uh, from the for the giveaway, and I have a big big plastic tub here, and I basically just printed off the emails and folded them up and and put them in the tub and. Uh, we'll do that in just a second. So first, I kind of put together, uh, I, I pulled some of the topics that people suggested would like to, to see or hear more of on the podcast, and I grouped them together in, in kind of um, in a Word document just to kind of have something to, to go off of and see what, you know, maybe what the common themes were and uh, get an, a better idea of just in, you know, detail what what people wanted to hear. So I'm going to kind of go through these a little bit um, and get an idea. If there there were quite a few things that were mentioned multiple times, and if there's something here that is not mentioned that maybe you want to hear, uh, feel free to send me an email and let me know. So I'm kind of going to use this to, to, to I've done this uh, once or twice in the past, and it's a great way to reframe myself in terms of getting a better understanding of what people want to hear. So I'm not necessarily going to go and say, okay, I'm going to do every single thing that's on this list. But if I've, I'm looking for a topic and I see something that's gone up on this list a couple times, or if it's something here that I, I think is a good idea and I know something about, we'll go into it. If I don't know something about it and it's not an area of expertise, uh, one example is snaring. It's something I don't do much of other than under ice beaver snaring. I'll uh, I'll find somebody, you know, maybe I'll run into someone at a convention or meet a trapper that has a lot of experience in snaring and and uh, it could be an opportunity to get them on the podcast and do an interview to uh, to help myself to learn more about it and also to share that information with you guys. So I'll rattle off a few of these and we'll see uh, see what we got for ideas. Again, thanks so much for for providing emails with with all these ideas it, it's really great to uh, to get this feedback in-depth bedding of canine traps so want to go into exactly maybe the tips and techniques on on how to bed properly uh, in the methodology around that pan covers uh, or fill under the pan what uh, what methods work and why Wax dirt, wax sand, or peat moss. That's a topic that's been discussed quite a bit in trapping circles. So what's best and where do you use which type? Water snaring. That's something that I have very little experience with uh, snaring like open water for coons and, and mink and muskrats. New ideas for raccoon sets. So maybe some revolutionary ideas or new things that that are not uh, common knowledge in terms of of coon trapping. Uh, this was a common one I got multiple different times was uh, stretch wood stretchers, wire stretchers, um, the sizes and dimensions of stretchers, maybe a little bit on how to build stretchers and what they're made out of. Uh, just fur handling in general had a lot of fur handling questions. So guys, a lot of guys are just getting into trapping and and they're they're catching their first few animals or they've been trapping for a year or two but they're kind of turning the corner and okay I know how to catch a little bit of fur now what do I do with it 
I got to figure this out and, and what's, you know, maybe you skin something out, you, you put it up and you send it in, you get a certain price and you think, well, was that a well put up for, or could I have done a better job? Uh, a lot of it is, I think, a confidence level and, and you don't build that confidence level without learning more and getting feedback from people on, on how you're handling your fur. This was a good one, uh, trap line time management. That is a really good one because most of us that are listening to this podcast have uh, full-time jobs of, of some sort. And because of that, we have time management issues. A lot of guys have families. A lot of guys have young kids like I do. So I, I found that interesting that I got a lot of feedback from people that are kind of in the same boat that I'm in with uh, lots of responsibilities and not a whole lot of time, but really love to trap. So how do you manage that time properly when you're on the trap line? How do you manage that so that you are being the most efficient with the time that you have? Someone asked about species-specific episodes. So they mentioned that the the podcast that I did with uh, coyotes and getting ready for coyote trapping gear, it would be interesting to have that same type of podcast with uh, other for other species, talking about the gear, the tools, the types of traps for for multiple different species. And I think that's an excellent idea. It's really something I wouldn't have thought about. So I appreciate that that comment. Uh, I'm sure we can incorporate that into future episodes. Book recommendations. I love to read. I know a number of you guys love to read as well. And uh, th- this comment was looking for more recommendations on different books. Um, generally, more interviews, um, gear, gear reviews. So um, I'll plan to do some, some more reviews on different trapping gear. Comment, question on the fur market. Wanted to see more about that. Uh, here's one, creating positive PR in the trapping industry and doing things to preserve trapping. That's, that is a very important topic and it's something that I've heard from people, uh, a couple of different people on. Baits and lures, general. Uh, again, another one on putting up fur. We had a question on fox and coyote trapping in snow and freezing temperatures. That's a really good one. Um, I think the guy, guy that wrote in on that one was from Minnesota, I believe. So he gets a lot of the same conditions that I get here in northern Maine. Someone asked for interviews with some western mountain trappers. Um, that would be great. I'd love to talk to some of those guys. Uh, one on trap prep preparation. Um, another question, how to get more kids into trapping. One on fur handling again. Again, wood versus wire stretchers. Uh, size of fleshing boards. So that's, that's again, a common theme. So, uh, so we'll have to talk a little bit more about that as well. Um, someone commented that they enjoy the Alaska Trapper Tales. So I appreciate that because I enjoy them probably more than anybody. And you'll keep hearing about those. You'll hear one tonight. And finally, this was a, a topic that was really interesting. Um, how we position fur and market ourselves in 2019. And this was something from uh, Kevin. And I, Kevin, I appreciate this. One of the things that I've been really impressed with the listenership of this podcast is we have a lot of sharp guys out there. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of really articulate, smart people who just 
are real good thinkers and I really appreciate that it's awesome because we're all thinking about a lot of the same things and uh, Kevin really brought this point up and I think he did a great job of explaining it and and I'm gonna go into this a little bit he actually had two points uh, the first one talked about getting kids into trapping and he says um, in in Trapper's World this month there's a good interview with Dave Hastings the author asks him how we get more kids into trapping he says we've tried a lot of stuff and you know if you know the answer here's my email address let me know um, that is always a challenge. How you get someone into trapping? How do you? Because we're we're so passionate about trapping, and this isn't like the old school, the old days where trapping was a money making enterprise. And when you made money on the trap line and it was really profitable, you didn't have to worry about getting people into trapping. Everybody was into trapping, whether they were what we might call true trappers or not. Uh, I think in a lot of ways you could say the true trappers, the guys that are are still doing it despite low fur prices now other people might just call us crazy of course but that that was never a challenge and it's becoming more and more of a challenge as we're getting fewer and fewer trappers and you see this at conventions you see this at at in trapping organizations you see it on the message boards online and just talking day to day with other trappers it's a huge challenge and i don't know uh, that there's a, an answer. When Kyle Kotz interviewed me, and we did that podcast episode where where he kind of played the the host, uh, we talked a little bit about this, and he had a a question or a real good question about uh, what you would tell if you had all the trappers in the country in one room. What would you tell them? And we got we got into that a little bit. And if you haven't heard that, you ought to get go back to that episode and listen to it, because I thought. Even if you just fast forward toward the end, uh, that that was like the last 20, 30 minutes of that episode. I thought it was it was a really good conversation we had, and I the best answer I don't have the answer uh, first off, but the best answer that I have is there are people who are not going to be trappers, and if you have kids. And you want to get them into trapping. There's there's a certain percentage of people. It doesn't matter how many times you take them out in the woods. Doesn't matter how many good experiences they have on the trap line. They're not going to be trappers. They're just not. It's just not in them. Um, there's there are also probably equally as many people maybe who are going to could be trappers. The problem is that that I've seen, and I was one of these guys, and Cole Porter, my friend up here in northern Maine, was one of these guys, and I've met many others just like this, were predisposed to be trappers. We love this stuff, but we never had someone to teach us how to trap. We never knew a trapper. We didn't really know a whole lot about what trapping was, and it wasn't until we got exposed to a trapper and we were able to to talk trapping and think trapping and get into it and get out on the trap line that we became trappers so so i guess there i don't think there's any answer real answer in terms of what we can do to make this person become a trapper i think that 
we need to open ourselves to assist young people who are predisposed to be trappers. That might mean, you know, you got a few, you got kids. Take your kids out with you. Take them out, you know, and when they're young, my boys are six and three right now. And one day they want to be out on the trap line and one day they don't want anything to do with trapping. Uh, kids are just that way at this age. So, I mean, take it with a grain of salt if they're not too pumped up about it. Um, just take them out there, enjoy yourselves, have fun, and no pressure. No pressure at all. If they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. But chances are, um, you go out enough times, they're, they're going to want to do it and they're going to enjoy it. Because they're kids and they like to do cool stuff. And who doesn't think trapping's cool? But over time, they may or may not be trappers. But maybe you have a brother who has kids. Maybe you have a friend, a neighbor, whatever. Some There are people out there who would be interested in this stuff if they had someone to take them out trapping. So one of the things that you can do is try to be that person, that helpful, responsible adult that wants to get people out outdoors. You can do that. The other thing that you can do that, that I think is important is is not not to be this big loud and proud and I'm a great trapper and everything, but be don't be afraid of of letting people know that you're a trapper. Um, not in an abrasive way. And maybe if, if you live in Chicago in the city, maybe that's not a great idea. I don't know. Uh, although the coyotes are, there's quite a few stories about coyotes hanging out in, in Chicago. But anyway, you know, I, I live in a rural area. I have an F&T. I, I ordered from F&T a little while back. I get, they give me a hat. I get an F&T for a Harvester's Trading Post hat. I've been wearing that hat around for the last two months. And once in a while, so in the Cotsbros, I, I get the Cotsbros um, shirt got skunked. I think that's a hilarious shirt, by the way. But I'll I'll wear that just in public, you know, just just out shopping or you know doing whatever. Uh, and you know, people don't really think much of it. Most people don't even pay attention. But once in a while, someone says, "Huh, what's that? Got skunked? What's that? Oh, it's a trapping supply company. Oh, you're a trapper. Oh, interesting." And and I think it's those little touch points, those little interactions with people with trapping, because there's so few trappers out there nowadays that people have not had the opportunity to interact with the trapper or know what a trapper is, and the general public public is thinking, well, trap, you know, they're they're just these outdated old um, hillbilly crazy mountain men that. Aren't and don't have a place in modern society, so I think you know just the little things like that can can uh, potentially uh, go a long ways for the trapping industry as a whole. And maybe maybe you're wearing that hat or that shirt, or you bring something up um, about trapping. I actually the last I've been a little more bold about it. I guess I, maybe it's because of where I live now. I'm getting settled in here, and I'm more comfortable telling people I'm a trapper. You know, when I was in other places, that wasn't necessarily a, a popular as popular a thing. But um, I, I don't know. I'm kind of I tend to bring it up more in conversations, and we talk about uh, oh, I was talking with the guy that um, was fixing tires at the the tire shop the other day, the auto shop, 
and he's got some land next over to me and it just so happens I had trapped some beavers there a couple years before he bought the land and and I mentioned it to him and oh man he says you you yeah do you want to go back there and trap oh those beavers I I've had beavers in there flooding the last the last year or so. So they've been in there and they're making a big mess and and uh, yeah, that'd be great. So you know, he otherwise if I hadn't brought that up, he wouldn't have even known I was a trapper. So uh, that's a case where we're talking about a number of different things here. Okay, getting more people into trapping, uh, representing trapping in a positive light. And getting more opportunity to trap. So these, it's thing. There, there's a number of different positive outcomes from this. There are negative outcomes. Um, you know, you, there are a few people that I've told I was a trapper, and you know they look at you a little funny, and maybe they think a little less of you. Those are the people that I don't really care what they think about me because they're they're not my my type of people anyway. So we re- be respectful to each other, and we go on our way. Um, that's part of life, but. In general, for me, it's been a very positive thing. The more I've kind of talked about trapping um, in in everyday life, and uh, I think I I think maybe that's what we do. You know, maybe we maybe we just bring it up a little more and talk a little bit more about trapping, and and uh, who knows? It, and and you know what? This is not it's not like a, a religion or something. You know. It's it's we don't need to pre go out and preach trapping I guess is what I'm saying, uh, but it's not going to hurt to talk about it you know I mean I mean it it's it's something that nobody really thinks about anymore and trapping is an important part of wildlife management and there's a lot of guys that are out there uh, harvesting animals and nobody really sees it happening and doesn't understand it's going on so so this is becoming more and more important all the time in today's society. And I think it. I think people need to know what who trappers are. Put a face uh, uh, to the trapper, the modern trapper, and understand that it's not the boogeyman. You know, so so that's kind of I guess the way I would go about Kevin's uh, first question. But uh, but if anybody else has thoughts on that, uh, I think it'd be great to hear from you. Um, I know a lot of people are doing great things and spending a lot of time doing this and, and trying to promote trapping and get young kids into trapping and and uh, and I applaud them for those efforts. Now here here's the the big question from Kevin and <laughs> this is a question that is 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 as massive. I don't I don't really know how to if it's even possible for us as trappers to tackle this because this is society as a whole. He says, I'm doing a lot of thinking about how we position fur and market ourselves in the USA in 2019. I'm not sure the days of glamorous people wearing full mink coats are coming back. My intuition is that there is a future for fur as eco-friendly, sustainable, and authentic. I took my oldest to a trapping class a couple months ago, surprised at the diversity of the people there, young women, uh, backyard chicken, do-it-yourself, homesteading types, um, young people of color, etc. Besides just trapping, they're interested in meat production, do-it-yourself tanning. Um, I think there's really future for fur consumption in the U.S., but it's probably not going to be the garment district of New York City. But it's going to take more than one person to make this this happen. It's it's a cultural thing. So, Kevin, I appreciate you bringing that up because it is a big topic. Uh, we 
we need an outlet to sell our fur as trappers. And fur is one of those things. If it doesn't have a market, it's an awful, terrible waste. We have so many animal damage issues in this country. Animals have to be harvested for population control, for predator management, for damage control. Um, There there is is a need for wildlife management. These predators... uh, for the most part, are at the top of the food chain in in their ecosystem. And without humans uh, playing a role as the ultimate predator, they're going to become overpopulated and have impacts on prey species and have impacts on on humans, uh, roads, infrastructure, homes, uh, and so on. So animals need to be managed. These animals are fur bears. Fur is potentially a very valuable product. But I think... I think that Kevin's right. The garment district in New York City is shrinking. New York City's talking about banning fur. Um, yes, we have other countries around the world that are are growing in fur consumption, and that's great. And that's a positive thing. But long term, I don't know what's going to happen with that. And and I think there is an opportunity. I've thought about this for a long time and never really had an answer. Um, I think some uh, somebody that's probably listening now from somewhere out west, maybe Colorado, I can't remember. Uh, if you are listening, email me back. Um, I think we talked a while back and you talked about the same exact subject on, on marketing fur and, uh, and how, to, how to do that. And I don't, I don't have an answer. Uh, but, but it seems as though this is something similar to the movement, the grass-fed beef movement the organic farming, organic uh, food movement where people, society is changing as a whole and thinking more about sustainability and long-term impacts the environment and how we interact with the environment. And I I do feel a shift uh, going away from the animal rights movement um, and and the, the whole animal welfare issues um, I think, but it but it's maybe going in a couple of different directions. Um, some of that animal rights sentiment is moving away from animal rights and moving more towards sustainable living and impact on the environment. Some of that, a lot of that sentiment is just moving towards apathy, where who cares? You know, people are just doing their thing, living their life, and they want to have a house and a car and a TV and go on the weekends out on their boat maybe and that's about it that's life and they don't really they've never been on a farm they've never harvested fur and and there's no connection there so we're we're kind of in society i think we're in a point where a lot of things can change and and i don't know how to position fur as this sustainable renewable thing I think fur has huge potential because it's very valuable. Um, it can be used in a number of different ways. Not, not only fur, but leather as well. can be used for a number of different things and, and can be very valuable and very useful. But how do we, as trappers, or as someone who wants to market fur for trappers, how do we turn that into a market that can actually consume a good portion of the fur that we produce. 
I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. It's it's uh, I gotta believe there's some way to to create a market more than, beyond just eight hundred dollar Canada goose parkas that have a couple strips of coyote on the hood of the parka. But I don't know what the answer is. So that's just a little bit of food for thought. You can think about that a little bit more. And if you have an answer, uh, fire away. Let's uh, let's have a brainstorming session. Now, before I forget, we got to do a drawing. I'm sorry, I drew this out for such a long time. I'm going to shake these uh, papers around in this big tub. And I'm going to come up with a name. And, and I'm going to send that name I'll, I'll email you back and get your mailing address, and Kyle and Kellen will ship out the Black Book of Coyote Trapping and the Flat Set Foot Fix DVD. So if you're a coyote trapper um, or, or a wannabe coyote trapper, this is going to be a huge uh, jump start for you uh, to get, get, uh, get into coyote trapping or fox trapping. All right, shaking these up. Okay, and the winner is, let's see, Scott, Scott T. All right, Scott, congratulations. Thank you for emailing, and uh, I'll be in touch with you. Awesome. That's going to be great, and if you guys uh, are disappointed that you didn't win, I don't blame you because this is a great book and DVD. You can go to cotsbros.com and you can pick up the Flat Set Fix DVD and the Black Book of Coyote Trapping and they're really reasonably priced. I think the, I want to say the book's like maybe 12 bucks or 13 and the DVD's maybe $15. So, uh, great opportunity. Check those out. Alright, let's move on and Hey, somebody wanted to hear more Alaska trapping. <laughs> so um, that is, uh, that's again, something that I'm a little bit crazy about. But I wanted to go and talk about uh, James Carroll's book, Above the Arctic Circle. This is uh, James A. Carroll. Between 1911 and 1922, he kept a series of journals on his life in the Alaska bush. Carroll was from Minnesota, and he uh, he moved to Alaska as a young man. I think he was like 16 or 17, and he wanted he he initially went to work as a cook in uh, the gold mining camps. And his brother had been out there mining, and they were going to get rich. And as shortly after he arrived in Alaska, Carroll decided that he wanted to go trapping. And of course, back then there was a lot of money in trapping. It was an adventurous lifestyle. He started talking to some old timers, and and he kind of was hooked on the idea. So he went straight to Fort Yukon, which was the fur capital of the world at the time, and he got an outfit. He got a trapping partner, essentially no trapping experience, and they went out in the middle of nowhere. And he spent several years going back out in in the same area, uh, trapping fur, uh, essentially. 10 months out of the year they'd be back in town for a couple months in the summer and they'd head right back out on the trap line it was a heck of an adventurous lifestyle uh, it was it was just it was crazy um, challenging brutal harsh conditions uh, took a very tough person to do that 
Jim and his wife Fanny had a whole bunch of kids, and one of those children was a guy by the name of Richard Carroll. And Richard grew up in in Fort Yukon, of course. Well, he grew up in the in out in the middle of nowhere with uh, with his parents on the trap line. But if you are interested in more information on this, in just like a an actual uh, an old timer storytelling session, Richard Carroll did an interview with the Alaska Trappers Association. He actually gave kind of a talk about his story in his trapping career he is he's either passed away or he's a really old man right now and uh, fascinating guy he had a lot of interesting stories to tell uh, again Jim Carroll's son and if you go to alaskatrappers.org the Alaska Trappers Association website uh, you can find these oral history interviews there are at least uh, 20 or 30 of them I've listened to probably eight or ten of them so far, and uh, just go down till you find Richard Carroll's interview. You have to pay for them. I think they are two dollars, two dollars and fifty cents for an interview, and it's probably about forty-five minutes or an hour long of Richard Carroll giving a talk. I think it's well worth the, the price, and uh, it's it's he's got a lot to say, a lot of, a lot of great trapping information there. He was one heck of a lynx trapper and a marten trapper back in the days. But his father, Jim Carroll, he uh, he trapped for a number of years. He went into Fort Yukon, settled in, and started a trading post. And he was a fur buyer for a number of years. He actually went back out in on the trap line um, in between uh, some of that. But uh, when he was had some young kids, him and Fanny, one year, decided to go out to the old Crow Flats. Um, the Crow Flats were at the kind of the headwaters of the Porcupine River, right along in uh, around the border between Alaska and the uh, Yukon Territory in Canada. And the this area was just a huge, massive flat country with tons and tons and tons of water and it was it was wide open not a tree in sight uh, and and water 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 just flat area with all kinds of little backwater sloughs on the river and in pothole lakes all over the place and this water and these lakes and river channels were all loaded with muskrats and back in those days in the 19 uh, teens muskrats were selling for $3 a piece now that doesn't sound like much right but if you punch in in the inflation calculator $3 in say 1913 that was worth about $25 today's money so rats are paying 25 bucks um, not too bad if you can go up to the crow flats and, and catch several hundred of them or a couple thousand so they decided to go up to the Crow Flats. And, and typically these guys, um, they were out on the trap line all winter long, but they would start out and they'd be trapping for uh, lynx, marten, wolf, wolverine, um, a little bit of mink, and, and some of the other species. But they wouldn't trap for rats until sometime in March when, when things slowed down for the other species. And they would start trapping through the ice in March and then go until uh, break up or until the the ice melted 
and then when they had open water they'd shoot their ads so so this was kind of a trip to go up and and uh, and do kind of combination trapping and shooting so there's a chapter in in his book above the arctic circle which you can find online uh, there's lots of copies available it's called uh, the crow flats and i'm going to read through this chapter first i'm going to back up for a minute to the end of the previous chapter because it gives a little introduction on the the crow flats carol says during 1919-1920 muskrats were bringing four dollars each on the fur markets we decided to go to the old flats to catch rats the old crow flats are located in the yukon territory canada they're about 70 miles across and contain several hundred lakes nearly all of them rat lakes some of the lakes are 10 miles in extent we decided to go to the crow flats and make our fortune catching rats the crow flats are located about 250 miles north of fort yukon by dog team we would have to double trip all the way with two dog teams in order to take plenty of grub, traps, and stretchers. This would mean a trip of 500 miles with double tripping from Fort Yukon. We had two toboggans, one 10 feet and one 7 feet long. Fanny would use the smaller one with four dogs and haul the babies, bedding, stove, and tent. I was to haul dog feed, grub, traps, etc. My toboggan was 16 inches wide, Fanny's was 14 inches wide. I also hauled a large canvas to make a scow to float down the Crow River after ice went out. When we were planning this trip, a lot of the old timers said we would never make it, and if we did make it, we would never stand the climate. It was tough country all right, almost treeless, snow blowing and making drifts so one could hardly cut them with an axe, and blizzards that blew snow through tents. But we figured if trappers had made it in years past, we should be able to stand it too. That's a good outlook. Hey, someone else figured it out someone else was able to do it we ought to be able to do it i like that that's that's uh tough people say that that's funny all right chapter six the crow flats we finally got started on our long trip to the crow flats on april 1st i had already moved 600 pounds of our stuff as far as schumann house which used to be a small indian settlement 70 miles from fort yukon i used the seven dogs in my large toboggan with this load i went along quickly making the trip in four days I had let the dogs rest one day before leaving Fort Yukon. Our loads were not too heavy. From Schumann House, we moved to a place called Old Village, another deserted Indian settlement 20 miles from Schumann House. Each of these way places had at least one old tin stove in them, left there by trappers who traveled up and down the Porcupine River. Their windows had been broken years before. Stopping in one of these cabins was just a bit better than camping out in the open. Fanny and the two youngsters stayed in one while I went back with the dogs to Schumann House, bringing forward the goods we had left there. We tried after that to make it a practice of not making over 15 miles a day. This would allow me to round trip the next day. We had to set up the tent and stove if we stopped, if no old cabin was available. The next deserted village was called Burnt Paw. This was over 20 miles above Old Village. This made a long day with heavy loads. Our next stop was Curtis's place, commonly called the Howling Dog, because the wind is always blowing through a narrow canyon just above Curtis's camp. It makes a noise just like a dog howling. The distance between Burnt Paw and Curtis's was 35 miles. It took us three days to make it. Curtis trapped at Howling Dog for many years. We stayed with Curtis overnight. He treated us fine, and he was a great talker, but we didn't get to sleep till midnight. Our next stop was to be Old Rampart, only 14 miles upstream. We made this distance in a few hours. 
The weather so far was fine, although the nights were cold, 30 or 40 degrees below zero. We stopped a couple of days at Old Rampart to give the dogs a rest. Old Rampart used to be quite an Indian settlement years ago. The Hudson Bay Company was at Old Rampart once, thinking they were in Canadian territory. Eventually, they moved back up the Porcupine River some 35 miles to Rampart House, where the Canadian-American lines paralleled one, each other, one another. We stopped over a couple days, as I said, to give the dogs a rest. We bought two bales of dry fish from the natives, which is about 100 pounds at 40 cents a pound. Our next stop was Campbell River, 14 miles from the Canadian line, where two partners lived and trapped together for over 30 years. We stopped with the partners for three days. In all those years, they had never quarreled once. Hank was always willing to do all the work, and Henry never interfered with them. While staying with the partners, we moved all our goods up to the Canadian line. It so happened that the partners were going to the Crow Rat Lakes, too. We all decided to go out together. They'd been out to the Crow Flats themselves the past couple of springs. They both said they knew the pass across the mountains, which meant everything. The partners were always short of wood and never kept enough on hand to start the morning fires. I've seen Hank wake up at 5 a.m., pull on his parka, go up a timbered ridge back to their cabin, trying to find a dry pole to start a fire in their heater, with snow so deep he had to use snowshoes to navigate, and the thermometer hovering around 40 below. Can you imagine? If the fire went out in the heater for want of wood, it would get just as cold in the cabin as it was outside. There were holes in the roof of their cabin so big you could see the stars shining through. Eventually, Hank would get the fire going. Next, he'd fill up a couple tin buckets full of snow, set them on the flat top heater to melt for water to brew coffee. They were both great coffee drinkers and cigarette smokers. I got up from our bed on the floor and dressed. I didn't like to see poor old Hank doing everything. I thought I could help in some way with the cooking. They wouldn't let us use any of our groceries. Everything we ate had to be theirs. They were that kind. As mentioned before, the place where the partners trapped from was known as Campbell River. They did a little trading in groceries, which they brought up by boat in the fall. The two babies were standing the trip well so far. Our next stop was Rampart House, just inside the Canadian border, 14 miles from Campbell River. We had to go through the customs there. There were two Royal Canadian Mounted Police stationed there. We paid custom fees on our grub, ammunition, and tobacco. The ammunition tobacco carried a heavy custom fee. We also paid $5 fee on each of our dogs. The fee was to be refunded to us when we brought all the dogs back with us. The police had a station at the village of Old Crow, which was situated at the mouth of the Old Crow River. This station was to contact the ratters floating down the Crow River with their catches, which sometimes totaled 60,000 or more rats. At Rampart House, we stopped with Daniel Kadzow. He had a fine house and a general store. Kadzow invited us to stop with him in the house. We'd known Kadzow for several years. He certainly made us feel at home. He fed us with the best he had. We bought some flour, sugar, coffee, and dried fish from him, making sure we'd not run short of anything. This was our last chance to stock up before starting over the mountains to the flats. Kadzow operated his store in the old Hudson Bay Company fashion. He sold everything by the cupful. I forget how big the cups were. Sugar was 50 cents per cup, flour 50 cents per cup, rice 50 cents per cup, raisins a dollar per cup, bulk tea a dollar per cup, bulk coffee a dollar per cup. Kadzow was a fine host, but he never had a heater in the store. When anybody wanted to buy something, he had to dress up in his fur parka to keep from freezing. 
It was a little early yet to start across the mountains. The partners stayed at the police barracks where one of the dogs bit our small son Clifton on the hand very badly. He carries the scar to this day. We didn't know what to do for a while. The police carried some first aid medicine such as iodine, salve, and bandages. This wound delayed our leaving for a few days more. Cadzow told me about a native who brought in three Martin skins to sell. Cadzow knew they were three nice Martins. He had offered the native $20 for each skin. The native said, no, too small. I want $15 for each skin. Cadzow said he thought for a while and then said, all right, I'll give you $15 each. <laughs> the native left, highly pleased with the $45. In the extra few extra days we stayed, we were going to haul our stuff to the top of the summit, three steep miles up from the river above Rampart, north of the Porcupine River. A native family at Rampart House wanted us to go with them out to the flats. They told us we would easily see the flats in three days, but we'd already arranged to go with the partners. They said they knew the way, as they'd been across the flats a couple of times before. I asked Hank how many nights dog feed I should take along. Oh, he said, we should be out to the flats in three days. Don't take over three nights dried fish with you. We took along seven nights dog feed, allowing plenty to take care of any unforeseen circumstances. When we got the flat to the flats, we expected to feed rats to the dogs. We were traveling now above the timber line. White mountains were all around us. I noticed we were traveling in an easterly direction instead of north. By nightfall, we hadn't made much headway. We were all tired, so we pulled down to a few spruce trees we could see from above. We put the night in there. Next morning, both Hank and Henry were totally lost. After leaving the summit above Rampart House, we never double-tripped it anymore. The next morning, we pulled back up to the White Ridges. Again, Fanny and I were the two, bi had the, were the two biggest dogs in our teams. Helping them up the steep mountain ridges was a job. After we got on top, Henry told us to wait for him until he got back. He wanted to do some scouting around for the right pass to get through the mountains. We waited hour after hour on top of the wind and snow-swept ridge for Henry's return. Presently, we spotted Henry about five miles away, standing on top of another white ridge. He looked as big as one's little finger standing there. There was nothing for us to do but wait for his return. When he got back, he said the way must be to the right of us, which would take us farther to the east rather than north. We wrapped all the dog chains we had around the toboggans to help check their speed going back down the mountains. Sometimes the chains would break going over the rocks. At such times, the toboggans would almost get away from us because of their speed going down the slopes. We camped in a gully the second night. We found some dry sticks under the snow to make campfire to keep us warm and set up our tent. The youngsters had to be kept warm while changing their flannels after they'd been tied down all day in a toboggan. Fanny used to have to melt snow for water to wash diapers every night and hang them up above the stove in the tent to dry. Joe, the youngest child, nine months old, still wore them. The next morning, we pulled up to a different ridge and down the other side. We were in a very rough country. It was cut up with deep ravines, some were 20 to 30 feet deep, straight up and down mud banks. Some we had to bridge in order to cross. Loose snow hanging to buckbrush fell in the children's faces when it was disturbed. We had to dress Clifton's hand every day. It seemed to be slow in healing and gave us lots of worry. After the sixth morning, I asked Henry where the Crow Flats were. He said, right over there, pointing to the old Crow Mountain, the largest mountain in the vicinity. 
Back of Old Crow Village on the Crow River side, there were many big grass meadows. Hank told me those meadows were the Crow Flats. It didn't look right to me. The Crow Flats were supposed to be straight north of Rampart House. They were hopelessly lost, but they wouldn't admit it. We ran out of dog feed and started digging into our groceries, such as rice, flour, lard. This had to be cooked for the dogs in a can on an open fire. What little we could spare to the dogs barely kept them alive. We were getting so weak, they were getting so weak they could hardly drag the toboggans. We could only spare a limited amount of our grub. We didn't want to run too short ourselves with a long spring ahead of us. This was only the last of April. Every day, Hank would say, we'll be at the old Crow Flats tomorrow. We couldn't turn back now. Our only hope was to try to keep going ahead and look for an Indian toboggan trail or other human signs. We were getting so desperate for dog feed that we were compelled to kill two of our dogs and feed them to the remaining six. We rationed the dog meat out to make it last, so each dog only got his own small chunk. Pretty crazy, pretty rough country. The partners were out of dog feed. They used up almost all of their flour and lard, cooking it up into large pancakes. We'd been heading towards Old Crow Village the past few days. All at once, we came across a fresh dog team trail coming from the vicinity of Crow Mountain. Old Hank said, well, we'll turn around now. Here's the Crow Flats Trail used by the Indians from Crow Village to reach the flats. We all turned around and headed north. Even the dogs all seemed happy that we'd hit a well-traveled trail. Hank had been leading us back to Crow Village. I said to Hank, I thought you said the flats were that way, pointing back to Crow Mountain, east of us now. Oh, no, no, we go this way now. Up to the day, they died. The partners wouldn't admit they'd been lost. <laughs> Hank died at Campbell River, up on the hillside, trying to gather some wood to keep his cabin warm. The wolverines supposedly ate Hank's body, thus ending the career of a colorful old-timer, a fixture of the far north. Yeah, it's kind of sad, but I guess there's, you gotta go. You gotta, that's one way to go. After following the fresh trail for about three miles, we came across some Indians camping on the side of the trail. We were sure glad to see them. We knew them all from Old Crow Village. Moses Peter was there also. He was the chief of the Crow Indians. They were on their way to the Crow Lakes. I bought a good dog from the chief, paying him $50 for it. I bought 200 pounds of moose meat from the chief also, mainly for the dogs to eat. We rested a couple of hours and had lunch with the natives. I gave the dogs each small pieces of the moose meat to eat while they were resting. This made me think of the two dogs we had to kill but it saved the lives of the dogs we still had left. I didn't dare let the dogs have all they wanted to eat. It might have made them sick. We bought all the flour, sugar, rice, and lard the natives could spare. It was two easy days from there to the flats. We went on a mile or so and camped for the night. No use rushing now. As mentioned before, the flats are just a maze of lakes of all sizes, some 10 miles in extent. After feeding so much of our grub to the dogs and buying all the natives had to spare, we were still going to be short. For this reason, we knew we'd have to live principally on rats all spring. We had plenty of Borden's canned milk for baby Joe. He almost died once on the trip. The older boy, Clifton, seemed to have pulled through fine. His hand almost healed on the trip. The weather was still cold. The season up there is about two weeks later than Fort Yukon weather. After reaching the flats, we went about seven miles through the lakes and set up camp. The partners went by themselves, and we never saw them again until we got back to Fort Yukon. They made a small catch of rats. It was hard to find rat houses. The snow was so deep and hard, no rat houses showed above the snow. 
once in a while we found some by following fox tracks. So hey guys, if you're ever going to be trapping uh, rats under the ice and snow, uh, follow fox or coyote tracks. It's probably a good way because um, a lot of times they'll be investigating, looking around for those. They could smell the rat houses through the snow and dig them out. I would dig down with my shovel where the fox had dug, only to find the rat house frozen up. I thought maybe one of my dogs could do the same as the foxes, so I tied a string around the dog's neck and led him around the lake. I gave him plenty of line so he could run around freely. It wasn't long before he was smelling something under the snow. I had my shovel with me and wasted no time digging down to where the dog was smelling. An open rat house! From the pack on my back, I took out a trap and set it. The dog found eight rat houses for me in about two hours. I set eight traps. The next morning I caught five rats. Fresh meat in camp and five rat skins. We fed these first rats to the dogs. They needed them more than we did. Our first thaw out there, our first thaw was May 20. <laughs> and I think northern Maine is cold and has long winters. Their first thaw was May 20. Many rat houses were beginning to show up all over the lakes. The dogs were getting fat now, and we had plenty of rats to eat ourselves. We had a surprise one day when we ran across our old friend Curtis. He'd run into some Indians, and they told him where he could find us. I didn't think Curtis was within a 100 miles of us. He looked like a man who had dropped from Mars. As mentioned before, he had a trap line of the Howling Dog Canyon. The Indians were scared of him. They'd never met him before. He wore a dirty old parka with the hood hanging over his head. The balance of his parka hung in tatters. He saw these Indians some distance off. He was so glad to see someone, he waved his arms up and down to attract their attention. They thought he was a scarecrow or a bushman. He yelled at them at the top of his voice. Curtis told me one of the Indians started to pull his thirty thirty rifle from the lashing of his toboggan to shoot at him. He'd been in Fort Yukon since 1897. We knew Curtis was a fine fellow to get along with and a good entertainer, so we agreed to put in the spring together ratting. We all moved 20 miles farther north, which proved to be a better location for rats. By this time, the sun never set below the horizon. Curtis had his own tent and stove. In the grub line, Curtis traveled light. He lived off the country mostly. When he arrived at the flats, he had 15 pounds of flour, 5 pounds of sugar, 1 can lard, 1 pound of coffee, 2 pounds of butter, 6 cans of milk, half a pound of tea, a pound of salt. He gave us his butter, coffee, and milk. We didn't want to take this from him, but he insisted we take it and said rats and flour were all he wanted to eat. He wouldn't accept anything for it. We used to have him eat with us quite often. It didn't take much to satisfy Curtis. I used to visit Curtis often to hear him talk. Our tents were close together. One day I was in his tent when he cooked a bunch of rats. He dressed out ten rats and stuck them in a five-gallon coal oil can. This coal oil can and a couple of lard cans were all the cooking dishes he had. He put the rats in this five-gallon can, heads down, with their tails hanging over the sides of the can, about four inches. He added water and let them boil for one hour. Then he reversed them, tails down, heads up. This gave the tails a chance to cook. The tails of the rats are very good eating when boiled or cooked over a campfire. Eight tails with a small piece of bannock makes a feed for a person. After cooking them for another half hour, he'd thicken the juice with a cup of flour, make a thick white gravy. This concoction would last Curtis for three days. Whenever he wanted to eat a meal, he'd fork out the can of the can a whole rat, together with some white gravy. This didn't allow much variety, but Curtis seemed to relish it. 
Rats for breakfast, dinner, and supper. When a person's hungry and a long way from the store, anything tastes good, no matter how many times one eats the same thing. Behind Curtis's sheet iron stove in his tent, he had a pile of rat bones as big as a large rat house. These are the bones from all the rats he'd eaten recently. About the time the snow was all melted, we moved our camp to Potato Creek, where it entered the Old Crow River. We had one bad storm that lasted for three days. The wind was so strong that it blew through our tent, blew snow through our tent. It was a real arctic blizzard, impossible for any human being to face. We missed looking at our rat traps for three days. A few days after the storm abated, it turned warm for a while. Ducks and geese started coming to the flats. Their quacking and honking and cackling was music to our ears. We knew that spring had arrived. As the crow flats were summer nesting grounds, we didn't have to eat any more rats. From now on, we saw more ducks and geese than we could have imagined. Every variety of duck came to the flats to nest. We ate so many duck eggs that we got tired of them. Swans were seen at different times also. The flats were alive with all kinds of small birds as well as ducks and geese. All seemed unafraid of us. They were not bothered by man and his shotgun. It seemed to us that the whole flats turned to life overnight. There were ptarmigan and flocks by the hundreds. Sometimes we couldn't sleep for their cackling noise which started at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. The ptarmigan were living on low bush cranberries that the melting snows exposed. We picked a few cans of the low bush cranberries for jam. These berries are just as good in the spring as they are in the fall when the winter snows bury them under a blanket of deep snow. We picked quite a few of these berries and made some jam, which was delicious. We couldn't make all the jam we wanted because of the small amount of sugar we had left. Cranberries are too sour to eat without lots of sugar. It was then the first week in June. We were shooting rats now instead of trapping them. We hunted together so as not to get separated from one another. The lakes looked so much alike in any direction one might turn, it would have been easy to get lost if we couldn't have checked the sun. Quite a lot of water had accumulated along the south banks of the lakes. The rats liked to swim around in this open water and sit along the lake shore sunning themselves in the early afternoon sun. The north banks of the lakes still remained frozen solid. Rats sitting along these open water banks made easy targets for our 22 rifles. Curtis had a poor assortment of guns, consisting of a single-shot 22 Winchester pump. When we saw a rat, I always let Curtis have the first shot because of his poor gun. If he missed, then it was my turn to shoot. Curtis carried along his 10-gauge, and whenever we came across two or three rats sitting together, Curtis brought the 10-gauge into action. He killed the three rats with one shot from his cannon. He turned their hides into salt shakers. We always took lunch consisting of fried or boiled ducks duck or goose with a piece of thick hot cake and butter a butter can to make tea in the mosquitoes were getting so thick it was almost impossible to stand them they swarmed in clouds we wore head nets they landed on our head nets so thick we couldn't even see through the net their hum almost drove us insane they covered a 22 barrel so thick we couldn't see our sights you couldn't shake them off by shaking your 22 you could shake them off by shaking your 22 but they land again along your gun barrel before you had time to aim. They nearly ate the two kids alive. The dogs suffered terribly. Their noses and their eyes were raw. We rubbed rat oil on the raw places, which seemed to help a little. We kept smudges, which is fires, smoky fires, around the dogs and ourselves. We had bed nets to sleep under. Even at that, lots of mosquitoes used to get in the bed nets somehow. There was no fly dope in those years, at least we never heard of any, 
such as uh, boo hatch, bug bombs, etc., as there is in the market today. Today being the I think the, <laughs> the early 1900s. The Crow River broke up June 1st. The ice on the lakes opened up about two weeks later. One could truthfully say that mosquitoes drove us off the Crow Flats. The mouth of Potato Creek where we were camped had some suitable poles to make a frame for our scow. This only took us a couple days to complete. I don't recall the exact dimensions of the scow, but it was large enough to hold seven dogs, 1,600 rat skins, bedding, two tents, two sheet iron stoves, some cooking tools, and five people. Uh, I'd say it's pretty big. We even brought our big toboggan down. This was put aboard the scow first, as it rested lengthwise on the bottom. Then we loaded it until we held nearly all our gear except the dogs. Four dogs were placed aft and three in the bow of the scow. Curtis had a couple gunny sacks of dried rats also. He hadn't eaten enough rats during the past spring, so he was taking these dry ones down to Fort Yukon to eat during the summer. The scow had a dunnage strip the full length. This kept everything dry on the bottom. We fashioned a pair of oars, a paddle, and two poles. We had to live off the country going down the Crow River as we had no white man's grub left, such as flour, sugar, and so forth. The river is full of fish, and we had a piece of fish net about six feet long. Anytime we wanted fish to eat for a change, we'd stop half an hour at most, any place along Crow River and fish. There was no current. With the slightest breeze, we'd blow back upstream again. We'd shove the net out from shore with a pole. It seemed that in no time, the floats would be bobbing up and down, which, of course, meant fish getting caught in the net. When we wanted to take the fish out of the net, we just pulled the net ashore. Our catch would be 75% suckers. We never ate these suckers because they had too many bones. We always caught white fish enough for ourselves, and the dogs ate the suckers. One day, we didn't know what we were going to eat for lunch when two geese flew high above us. I said to Curtis, watch me knock the lead goose down with my 30-40 rifle. I hit the rear one and shot its head off. Gosh, said Curtis, what a shot. <laughs> I do that every time, Curtis. The only thing is, you didn't hit the one that you aimed at. <laughs> His remark knocked some of the wind out of my sails. I suppose I've shot at geese a hundred or more times with a twenty-two rifle and larger calibers while they were in flight, but this was the first time I ever knocked one out of the sky. A fluke shot, of course. Fanny started to pick the goose right away. When she had it fully plucked, we went ashore and built a fire and boiled it, making a fire out of some dry wood we had in the scow for that purpose. There were no gravel bars or driftwood along this section of the Crow River. When one stepped ashore, he would sink to his knees in mud or silt. After the goose was cooked, we set the kettle containing the goose aboard the scow and shoved off on the river to let it drift as we ate. We saved the juice that the goose was cooked in to make some kind of soup for dinner. We were never stuck for eats, as long as we had Curtis's dried rats in reserve. We didn't know how far we were up the Crow River, however. It took us eight days rowing from where we built the scow to the mouth of the river. All day long we'd be traveling around and around the sun. The 200-foot mud and glacier banks were always sloughing off from the heat and sun on them. In one place we saw part of a mastodon tusk sticking partway out from one of these muck banks. We didn't try to take it. It had no value at the time. About four feet was sticking out. Possibly another four feet was out of sight, frozen in the muck. Imagine seeing that. One day about noon we saw smoke, and thinking it was an Indian camp, we stopped and found an easy way to climb the high bank. We found it was our own campfire we had left early that morning. 
So we actually went forward about 300 yards in the forenoon. <laughs> so basically we're saying this river just winds and winds and winds around and around and bends and circles that uh, basically they went all day and they covered a lot of distance by the river, but actual ground, straight line distance, they didn't go anywhere at all. About the seventh day, we came across some Indians fishing for whitefish with nets and drying them. The place they were fishing was called Schaefer Creek, a sizable creek emptying into the Crow River. One white man and his native wife were camped with the Indians. His name was Abner. He was an old landmark from Fort Yukon. They gave us a good feed of fish and told us that it was still 20 miles to the mouth of the Crow. The country was changing now, rolling hills, gravel bars, and swift water. Five miles below their camp, the river entered a canyon. This canyon was full of big boulders and sharp slide rock, very swift water, too. The Indians told us to keep on certain sides of the biggest boulders. The sharp slide rock was what worried me. If the scow scraped on the bottom, it would have ripped the canvas bottom wide open. This didn't seem to bother Curtis. I was scared, not for myself, but for Fanny and the kids. Fortunately, we went through without hitting anything. We shipped a little water from the big waves. After getting through the worst of the rapids, we tied up for the night. This was the first good camping place we had since leaving Potato Creek, where we built the scow. Gravel bars, lots of dry wood, everything. Abner gave us a little rice to make a goose soup with. The natives gave us some whitefish. We boiled these for breakfast. I personally hate boiled fish of any kind, but we had no lard left to fry them in. We reached Crow Village early the next day. Everybody in the village was looking down at us, and we, in turn, were looking up at them. A fur buyer had been at Crow Village all spring. He'd already bought all the rats at Crow for $3 each, including $15,000 worth the trader there had collected. An old white trapper who owned a motorboat took me to one side and told me to sell my rats quickly, as the bottom had dropped out of the fur market. Rates had dropped from $3 to a dollar and a quarter per skin. This man had made a trip to Fort Yukon and right back again, traveling 24 hours a day with two extra pilots. On their way back, they left the police and fur buyer's mail at Rampart House. The old-timer's name was Scotty. He tipped everybody off except the fur buyer, of course, to sell their furs to the buyer. So the buyer bought every rat at Crow for $3 each. We tried to sell him our skins, but he'd already spent all of his money. He asked us to wait till he got down to Fort Yukon. He said he expected money to be waiting there for him from his company. I knew what that meant. So we had to take our rats to Fort Yukon with us. We'd been a little too late in getting to Crow Village. We were all so busy and excited that we forgot we were hungry. The store owner was leaving for Fort Yukon in an hour or so. I asked him if we could ride down with him and how much he'd charge us. You can ride down with us. The charge would be $30. Bring your scow alongside my barge and put your junk aboard. There was lots of room, as his barge could hold 10 or 12 tons. The distance of Fort Yukon was 300 miles. I ran up to the trader's store, bought a box of groceries, including canned fruit. The trader always left someone in charge of his store while away on trips. We make it to Fort Yukon in two days and nights. On our way down the Porcupine River, we stopped at Rampart House to let the police off and pick up the fur buyer's mail. I noticed the fur buyer's mail consisted mostly of telegrams. After he had opened part of his mail, he threw up both hands and laughed. He knew he'd been jobbed. But he was a good sport. He was told by his boss not to buy any rats or anything in the fur line and to come right back to Fort Yukon. He left $60,000 in Old Crow Village. He gave the trader a letter of credit for $40,000. 
The company the fur buyer was buying for tried to back out of paying this to the trader. They couldn't make it stick. When the buyer reached Fort Yukon, he was fired by telegram. The rats he bought at $3 each just broke the company he was buying for. We sold our rats to a Fort Yukon trader for $1.50 each. We had over a thousand of them. The trader held these rats for more than a year and finally had to sell them at 75 cents each. Had we stayed down at Fort Yukon, we would have caught just as many rats and sold them for a better price. With all the hardships and danger we went through, we'd hoped we'd never see the old the crow flats again. Curtis had 700 rats and two gunny sacks of dry rat meat. Curtis held his rats for quite a while. He liked to speculate in furs. We didn't see Hank and Henry till they showed up at Fort Yukon about the middle of July. They had over 400 rats. They still wouldn't admit that they'd been lost trying to find the crow flats. <laughs> oh, I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, story. Neat adventure that they had. A really difficult, challenging situation. Uh, the things that people will go to to catch fur, right? And they, in that case, they could have just stayed home and done better. <laughs> but... Um, anyway, that was that was uh, fun for me. I hope that some of you enjoyed it as well. Thanks for all the feedback. Uh, if you want to hear more like that story, Above the Arctic Circle, the Alaska Journals of James A. Carroll. Um, you can find that on uh, Amazon, eBay, uh, might have it. It's, it's, it's available. There are a few copies available online. Thanks, Cots Bros and Fur Harvesters, for sponsoring the podcast. If you want to read my book, Fur Profit, a Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market, you could find that from Cots Bros. You can find it from my website, trappingtoday.com, Amazon, and a pile of other places. But until next time, I was Jeremiah Wood. This was the Trapping Today podcast. Keep on talking trapping, thinking trapping, and get out there, get ready for trapping season. We will catch you on the next episode.